HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. World Central Kitchen is serving thousands of fresh meals to Ukrainian families fleeing home, as well as people remaining in the country. This week on Let's Talk About Food, host Louisa Kasdan spoke with Henry Patterson about his upcoming relief trip. So you're going to Poland, and I think you told me you're going to be there for at least two weeks. I'm going to Poland to help feed Ukrainian refugees. With Jose Andreas's World Central Kitchen, I decided that's what I wanted to do for my 70th birthday. I leave in just a few days. We all see that what the Russians are doing is contemptible. As a food person, we all love to help. It's in our DNA. And here are people who really need our help. So if you want to help the Ukrainian refugees, either with money or even your hands and heart, find hashtag Chefs for Ukraine and World Central Kitchen. We have to do something. We can help. Remember, hashtag Chefs for Ukraine. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Michael Moosberger. Um, we'll talk to Michael about Gruner, of course, Riesling, Austria, Schloss Goldsberg, and a lot more. We'll taste one of Michael's traditions for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Michael Moosbroger, Austrian-born, grew up around skiing and his family's hotel in Lech Arlberg. Michael jumped into the wine business in 1992 as an apprentice and four years later took over the Schloss Goebbelsberg Winery. He is now the CEO and winemaker of this storied and historic winery. Michael believes in tradition along with innovation. His wines are a true expression of the terroir of Schloss Goebbelsberg and Austria, Michael has received numerous awards for his wines, including Wine and Spirits Top 100 Winery of the Year. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Michael. Welcome on my side. Um, was that intro accurate? Yeah, Everything fantastic. in there was good? Yeah, okay, yeah, doing good. very well. I just yeah. wanted to make sure. Yeah. All right, so we're talking to Michael. 
live in New York City at the Skernick Wine and Spirits office. So it's nice once again to sit across from our guests because we've been doing a lot of remote broadcasting because of the uh, whole COVID thing, but that's starting to uh, ease up. All right, so Michael, we have a lot to cover, okay? Um, you make wine at a winery that dates back to the 11th century. Not everyone can say that. Um, at the Goebelsberg Castle or Schloss Goebelsberg. So so everyone gets a sense of where you are, what you're doing, where you wake up. Give me a brief history of the castle, you know, its wine history, the area and all of that. Hmm. Well, uh, as, as you already mentioned, uh, Goebelsberg is uh, one of the oldest estates in Austria and probably also uh, in, the, in the today's wi- world of wine. And uh, we have been celebrating 850 years last year. Uh, however, winemaking on the estate is much older than that. So when we celebrated the 850th vintage of, of the estate, uh, it was related to the monastic estate. Uh, settlement on uh, on the place starts already in the 16th century before Christ. <laughs> so uh, the place is settled for about three and a half to four thousand years, and uh, was always settled throughout Roman times, Middle Ages, and used to be a classical fortress in the 11th century. Uh, was then rebuilt into a Renaissance castle in the 16th century and was brought in what it looks like today uh, between 1725 uh, to 1740 around. And uh, the the history of this place uh, is uh, somehow, you know, connected to monastic life and to Cistercians who originally came from Burgundy in the 12th century. Cistercian monks. Cistercian monks. You know, I mean, Cistercians uh, played a kind of a major role in the overall development of European vineyards. Uh, And there's a very simple reason to that. You have to imagine in the 12th century, monks were some of the only ones who could read and write. And therefore, they were the carriers of scientific research. So monks uh, basically, you know, were trying to find out where are the best places uh, to grow wine. How can we improve grape varieties and, and wine growing? How can we improve the vinification? And this was rather done on a, on a scientific level. And uh, this is uh, the reason why monasteries and, and, and monks were so important for the development of European wine growing up to the time of secularization, so the time of the French Revolution. And... Uh, and uh, whereas in France and, and in Germany, due to the outcomes uh, of uh, the Enlightenment and, uh, and the French Revolution, all these monasteries were privatized. In Austria, we had a different history to this question because we had a very Catholic emperor's house with the Habsburg family. And uh, Joseph II uh, made a kind of a compromise with the monks. He said, well, on one side, you know, we, we, have a, we have a problem with you. On the other side, you know, you're doing a, a lot of good things for society. And, you know, I mean, there's the whole teaching part actually was in the hands uh, of, of monks. Uh, there was um, retirement houses and, uh, and hospitals and all. So, you know, the, the, the social infrastructure, you know, was quite important. So he said, okay, let's 
let's make a compromise. You know, everyone who's into social activity, they shall proceed, and with the rest, we get rid of. And uh, so this is the reason why we still maintain in Austria quite a rich monastic life, you know, with all kinds of different congregations, from Benedictines to Augustines to Cistercians. And this is the reason why uh, the, the Cistercian monks from Zwettl uh, have been continuing to work uh, the vineyards until quite recently, until 1995. And as you already mentioned, I'm coming from the hotel and restaurant trade. My family runs a small Rolet Chateau Hotels uh, skiing resort in, in, in the Alps. So uh, let me ask you this. The castle always had vast property around it, mm-hmm. and that's where, you know, the monks and even past historically, um, there was always some kind of vineyard presence, grape growing and mm-hmm. all of that. Um, so the monks get out of there in the 90s, and I, I'm wrestling with this transition because I do a lot of research and I couldn't, you know, pinpoint it. So your background is in hospitality, mm. which exposes you to a lot, food, wine, people. Mm. Um, when did you make the shift to winemaking or what was that moment where you knew there's something going on with wine? I'm going to pursue this path. Yeah, it's it's uh, as as you said. Yeah, I'm, I'm coming from the hospitality, and and I've been working as a sommelier myself. So you were working as a sommelier, exactly, okay. exactly. And beside beside that, my father was the co-founder of the first Austrian sommelier association. So wine was always an important See, issue. See, I didn't pick there. up on that. That yeah. so your background is is exactly. fairly extensive yeah. in that sense. Exactly. Did you study for any certifications or not? No, I basically. <coughs> Trial by fire. You were out there. I basically I, I, I learned it, you know, you know, from stretch, um, and um, uh, and um, I was in very good hands, you know, with uh, with various different um, um, uh, growing wineries. And let's uh, talk about that. So you had mentors, <laughs> you had teachers. Exactly. Yes. You know, Willy Brundelmeier comes exactly. to. Yeah, I mean, yeah, would you say yeah. that's one of the more significant people? Uh, Willie Willie was uh, Willie Brunelmeier is uh, is, a, is a close friend um, and uh, uh, and I knew him already from my sommelier days uh, so and I always you know I I always you know liked you know his personal approach actually you know to winemaking so whenever there was a real technical question you know then then Willie was always the one who really could give a good answer actually to that yeah so more so on a scientific level tie yeah. something together for me so very strong exposure to wine family business sommelier I asked you this before, tie it together for me. Um, when does that something become a winemaking thing? And the next question is, how does something like Schloss Goebelsberg become available? <laughs> you know, how do you find out about it? And it's such a vast thing. You know, how does it become a property that becomes your life? Well, uh, it's, um, I mean, first of all, you know, is when my brother took over the family business, you know, I, I went into the growing areas, you know, started to learn about wine. And I basically was looking for an opportunity because I, I was not bound, you know, to any specific place. So I was looking in Styria, in the Burgenland area, in the in the Danube area. And it. I have to say it was luck and coincidence. 
Um, Tell me a little bit. And um, it was, um, well, the situation for the monks, uh, were, the thing is that there used to be a very famous monk called Father Bertrand. And Father Bertrand, you know, who was, you know, was responsible for the estate between 1958 and 1980 before he became the abbot of, of the monastery. And <clears throat> he was running as an abbot. He was running then the estate with managers. But he realized that in the future it will be difficult, actually, for the monks, you know, to have someone here that really has control over the whole thing. And, uh, and so he said, you know, in order to secure uh, the future of this estate, it will be probably wiser, actually, you know, to give it for a certain time, you know, away in other hands. Um, so the monks are still the owners. Um, you know, I, I took over the relationship uh, with the monks in a, in a long term, in, on, a, on the long term, so based upon two generations. So it's almost like a lease. It it is in it is, a way. I it mean, is it's a their lease, property, exactly. but you exactly. really yeah. and yeah. you have full reign to call the shots. Exactly. You know, in the field yeah. exactly. and in the wine making yeah. and all exactly. that. There. Exactly. Are they involved in any way, or are they? Go back to doing that. Uh, not in the direct decision making. However, you know, I, I always, I always try to keep them involved, you know, right. because I think that it's important that they, as the owners, you know, have a strong emotional relationship, you know, to, to this place. And it has been a part of their life, you know, for the past 800 years. So uh, I, I think that it's also important that even that they are not operationally currently involved uh, in, in the whole thing uh that they keep at least you know a kind of a, uh, an, an emotional relation i agree you they know, should feel place. like yeah, they're, exactly. they're part of it are you bound because of the unique situation with the monks the church how old it is are you bound to any government restrictions or you know historic landmarking things or you could do what you want in the fields. Or it, it is under restrictions um, because I mean, um, um, Gobelsberg, you know, as a as a baroque castle, um, you cannot do whatever you want. Uh, right. So, you can't so, put a ten-story hotel <laughs> in the middle exactly, of the building. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So, so of course there are restrictions. Um, and whenever we want to do uh, construction work, you know, we, you know, we have to deal with them right. uh, and to see, you know, if they give their approval or not and, and, and so on and so on. But, right. but it's, uh, uh, I think it's, a, it's a, a kind of a wise, you know, thing, you know, to do. And, and it's, uh, I think uh, we have no bigger problems actually with them. So, I mean, it's so hard for me to project what this place looks like. So, you know, at the end, I'm going to tell everyone, you know, where they can find the wines and more info. But this is not your ordinary, you know, winery. This is, you know, as we said, it goes back, you know, many years. You're living on the property? Uh, we we are living on the property um, because I think it's essential that someone's living there with your uh, wife and kids uh, with my with my wife my my kids uh, with my parents in law so my parents in law also 
uh, also, um, you know, are, are very much involved, actually, you yeah. know, and, and uh, so my, my mother-in-law is looking after the gardens and, and my nice. father-in-law is, uh, is, is doing, you know, cellar tours and, and, and hosting, you know, hosting people coming to the estate. Uh, which good he, for you, which he good really for the kids. Loves. Exactly. And so it's, a, you know, we're running the, the, the place today as, as a family business, you know, and, and however, it's also you're kind of different. You know, yeah. I mean, it's that's um, you hit it on the nose. We're running a family yeah. business, yeah. which in the wine business is not yeah. unusual, yeah. but it's kind of different. Yeah. You know, no shit. I mean, yeah. it's this yeah, amazing, yeah, yeah. you know, setup. But we'll get into that a little. Um, all right, so let's talk, and we'll weave back into the vineyards and the wines and the castle and all that. You know, as we have our discussion. Um, since I've been doing this show, there has definitely been an elevated interest in Riesling and Gruner, you know, for sure. Um, a lot of my past guests have been sommeliers, no doubt Riesling, even Gruner is like a psalm favorite. Mm -hmm. It's like their secret, you know, <laughs> favorite thing and all of that. Um, but I think, and I'm not wrong here, that when people think of these wines, they may think of Germany first, mm -hmm. you know, when they think of Riesling. Not so much Gruner, but mm -hmm. they don't know Gruner as mm -hmm. well as Riesling, mm -hmm. and Riesling is starting to have its, you know, comeuppance. So let's talk about, you know, these wines, these wines that you make. Tell me about the unique qualities of Austrian wines like Riesling and Gruner. I mean, there's definitely a profile. It's not just another wine. You know, I think you're the guy that could describe specifically these type of wines. Stylistically, you well, know. It, well, uh, f first of all, first of all, you know, I mean, uh, of course, I understand uh, the, the, the concept of, of grape varieties. However, I have to say that we are not primarily uh, producing Grunewaldlin and Riesling. We are primarily producing the typical wines of origin of, of the Danube area, of the Austrian Danube area. Now, what is the difference? Um, the difference. So, what you're saying is listen, these are important wines, but that's hardly everything. Well, and the region. The, the 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 thing is that you know when a winemaker says that he's producing Grunewaldlin and Riesling, then he puts the specific qualities of a grape variety in the center of attention. Fair, so, fair enough. So it's the, the question is what is Grunewaldlin and what is Riesling? You know, right? Well, uh, however, you can also you know see it from a different angle. You can say, okay, you have a specific vineyard, and what's the personality of this vineyard? that is represented by the grape variety of Riesling. Now, for example, uh, imagine you have a bottle of Clos de Bougeot in front of you. Now you can pose the question, what is this bottle now? Is this bottle now Pinot Noir that is grown in the Clos de Bougeot vineyard? Or is this wine a Clos de Bougeot that is represented by Pinot Noir? I think that's the argument almost for all wines it's i mean you know it 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 seems to be a, a, a game a language game but but i think it's a little bit more than that i mean I, I, as i said you know when when you say it's it's a, it's a pinot noir that is that is grown in the clos de Vougeau vineyard it means that the the winemaker you know is concentrating on the quality of pinot noir that is influenced in some way you know by this vineyard side right, right? 
But if you say that, okay, um, this wine is a Claude de Vougeot, that means that my my concentration as a winemaker is the question, what is the personality of Claude Vougeot? And if you looking the whole thing, you know, in the context of time, then uh, Claude Vougeot 200 years ago was something different than what it is today. And then Claude Vougeot in the 50s and 60s, you know, where they're all added, you know, kind of, you know, Rhone wine or uh, right. whatsoever, uh, then it, it was a very dark expression of, of Claude Vougeot, you know. Then the, right. the, then the law changed. Right. It became 1974. It, it, it is what, we've, what, what we experience today as what is Claude, Claude Vougeot. But in 100 years, it will be also something different. But it still will be Claude Vougeot. Right. Yeah? Right. So let me see if I could trip on the same question again. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> because th- that's a fair correction. If you take Austrian wines, and I'm talking very broadly here, and I don't want to spend a ton of time, and people think of Austrian wines and they think of German wines, is there a differentiation generally between the two? Because your correction of me was right. You know, what's the difference between German Riesling and no? But, it, you know, my, my sense, and maybe this will help, I feel that the Austrian wines are more food-friendly. Um, I, I think that, um, you know, when it, comes, when it comes to that question, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think that, you know, when it comes to the difference between Germany, um, this is something that uh, is, uh, even though that we have same grape varieties, for example, like Riesling and right. so on, the, the difference is the culture of enjoyment. And this is something that is somehow connected to our eating and drinking uh, cultures that we developed over time in Austria and in, in, in Germany. And uh, the interesting thing is that uh, I read a few years ago from, from, from a German chef uh, that was trying to figure out about the enjoyment of you know of german consumers and he he posed actually he posed um the theory that the question of enjoyment in germany is somehow linked to to the confession there is a big difference between the north of germany and the south of germany you know we in germany they say the the weisswurst equator you know the right the the, right. the sausage equator. <laughs> so That's funny. Uh, the, the 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 question of the the, the question of uh, of enjoyment is uh, is very much somehow obviously linked, you know, to the question of Protestantism and Catholicism. That's a good point. And and uh, and this is also you know. Um, Wilhelm Weil from Robert Weil Estate, uh, he he told me actually three years ago. He said, "Michael, you would not believe." Uh, Still, 80% of Riesling consumption in Germany is outside of the food situation. Really? And, uh, and I was astonished myself, you know, about this. And, and I said, we could, you know, this is completely different in Austria. Because in Austria, nearly 100% of all wine that is produced in Austria is wine that is aimed to be food companion. So our, our a customers... Very specific Exactly. Exactly. So our culture and we as winemakers, you know, we were always forced uh, to produce wines that are good food matches. So that means wines needed to be dry. So dry, 
Dry means below four grams. Right. Yeah? So higher than German. E- exactly. So, and and exactly. I hate to make direct comparisons, yeah. but that's an obvious. No, one. no. I mean, you know, I, I really love love German wines and, and German. Yeah, we're not putting really, them but, down. It's but, just no, no, no. It's it's. But but I think that you know wine. Uh, you know, I, I occupied a lot of, on the on the history of wine, and what I learned actually, you know, in in the history of of wine is that. Wine is always a kind of a reflection of accurate times and culture. No matter if it was in the Greek Roman times, no matter if it was in the Middle Ages, no matter if it was in the in the Baroque times or in the Romantic times, you know, somehow you know the the expression and the personalities of wine were always somehow reflecting, you know, of what people you know were eating and drinking and how in in which way they were consuming actually you know these beverages right and 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 this is this still counts for today you know and and if if you have a culture of drinking you know wine in the afternoon or after dinner you know then you have the possibility of having you know a little bit more sweetness in the wines and if that balances you know the wines out more perfectly you know then uh, then it, it is a very wise thing to do Right. And um, so Finnish, there were probably a couple of two or three descriptors differentiating what makes them food friendly. Drier. I'm going to guess good acidity. It is um, it is maybe drier um, Then the acidity is not as high. Okay. And uh, there is uh, one crucial uh, differentiation. We are not aiming to make the wines too aromatic. So we are rather fermenting the wines a little bit higher with higher temperatures so that the wines do not have, you know, this kind of primary, you know, exposed and expressive, you know, aromatic I came profile. across an expression. Does it exist? Non-bouquet? Non-bouquet. Non-bouquet is good. Is that to keep exactly. the aromatics down? Why, why is that? It's very simple. You know, when it, comes, when it comes to matching food and wine, there's a very simple rule. Um, the more aromatic a wine is, the more precise you have to be in matching food and wine. So, so it's more friendly. Exactly. So the and less it may ar- overpower too. Exactly. The, the less aromatic, the more universal a wine gets. So the you know if you if you have and and I think this is also the reason why Grunewaldliner is such an such a success uh, in in Austria and in meanwhile internationally. Um, that Grunewaldliner is a fantastic food companion and. You, you do not have to forget, 80% of the life of the sommelier is that he has a table in front of him where everyone's eating something else. So what does the sommelier need? He needs wine that, versatile. that are very versatile. And yeah. just because it's fish yeah. doesn't mean anything because the sauce may dominate. So you have to think about all these exactly. things. Exactly. You know? yeah. it's, it's, it's a very good point. Um, so it sounds like... <laughs> To oversimplify things, that the Austrians are happier than the Germans, and they make a wine that is incredibly drinkable, well made, and great with food. <laughs> Too simple or not bad? It's a. I mean, it's a, it's, it's very simple. I mean, yeah, you know, I, I, I remember very well. Actually, you know, the, 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 when when I came twenty five years, you know, to Germany, you know, the situation was really, really different to you know to what it is today. You know, I. It, uh, 25 years ago, uh, in Germany, everyone was a little bit skeptical about German wine. Nowadays, you know, the, the, the nation is really proud about their wines. Mm. And it's good. You know, I, 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 I always, you know, 
I always felt felt sorry for my colleagues, you know, in Germany, you know, because I mean, if you if if you have a population and country, you know, that is not really proud about what you're doing, you know, I mean, it's it's really a shame, you know. Yeah. Um, it's not good for for you know for the culture of wine, and 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 this this is something that really changed, and you know, to to a to a great thank you, you know, to the VDP, you know, that did a tremendous job, you know, in the, in the past 20 years. Um, and, uh, and that, uh, that really, really, you know, changed, you know, changed, changed the cards. You know? I know in Germany and tell me if this may be true in Austria, that, um, there's a wave of newer, younger winemakers. Um, I've read, and I'm not positive that property is not crazy in price. You know, when you look at Napa and Burgundy, mm. I mean, to acquire mm. land, it's it's not mm. as crazy as mm. that. So, you know, so people are coming in. Is there a little of that in Austria? Of course. Uh, I mean, yeah, Austria is a very dynamic country. Yeah. Um, and there is a young generation, and and there is still there is still you know the possibility. You know, if 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 you're young, if uh, if you're dynamic, if you can make good wine, and if you you know, if you can also, you know, do a little bit of good marketing and sales, then sure. then you can build up, you know, within one generation, you can build up a fantastic property. You know, it's crazy. So. All right. I want to talk about uh, the vineyards and the wines of mm -hmm. Schloss. And like I said before we did this show, we could probably spend a whole show on just the tradition wine. So let's, you know, try to cover as much as we can. Um, the... Castle is in the Comto region, mm -hmm. um, right by the Danube. Mm -hmm. um, so tell me about specifically the castle and the vineyards. Just give me an idea of the types of soil. Is there a lot of diversity? Are you dealing with different elevations? Um, is the climate singular or you're dealing with, mm -hmm. you know, what are you up against every mm -hmm. day? No, I mean, the, the, the Danube area um, with, uh, with the appellations of uh, Wachau, Kremstal, Kamtal, Treisental, Wagram is a, is a fantastic area. It's about the size of the today's Kotor, about okay. 10,000 hectares. Um, and it's by its structure, it's a valley landscape. You know, you have the, the main valley of the Danube and then you have the side valleys of the Danube. Uh, from the north, you have the river of Krems, which is forming its own valley and uh, the river of Camp, which is forming its own valley. And then from the south, from the Alps, you have the valley of the Trisen. And uh, in German, Tal means valley. So the, the, the name of Kamtal translates into the valley of the Camp River. Ah. So this is the systematics behind, you know, sure. Kremstal is the valley of the Krems River and so on. Sure. So, um, well, what is quite important to understand actually uh, in, in this area is that what united, what unites uh, this area and all these appellations um, is uh, the, um, the, the soil because you find uh, the geology is, is everywhere basically the same. You have May, may, so mainly you have three types of soil you have uh, primary rock uh, which is a uh, which is coming from the bohemian mass uh, it's a brownish paragonite with high content of, of mica um, then you have alluvial soil so you know the danube in the past millions of years went through different parts of the area and have been depositing um, structures and then you have loess which uh, is coming from 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 the chalk uh, alps 
Uh, and um, here during the, the glacier time, when the, when the, the glacier is going over the rock, sharpening up tiny particles, which is washed out by the water and, and is picked up by the sand and transported and deposited and according to the structures in the, in the area. So you can have on the, on, the, on the southern and eastern slopes, you can have meter-high structures of loess uh, covering you know, the, the, the structures. And then on the northern and eastern side uh, or western side, is, uh, it's only you know, tiny layers. But, um, so that, that's, that's basically in, in, in all of these appellations. Um, when it comes to climate, it's a little bit more difficult because um, you always have to consider the construction of a valley. Right. Uh, you know, that you, you, you're starting at a lower point, and the more you go up in the valley, the more you gain in altitude, and the more you gain in altitude, the higher it gets and uh, the cooler it gets, until it's getting that cold that, you know, you reach the end of the winemaking zone. And uh, basically all these appellations, they're all working up to the limit. So in the Wachau behind Spitz, Spitzergraben, it's finished with winemaking. And in the Kremstal behind uh, Senftenberg, it's finished. And then in the Kamptal behind Schönberg, it's finished and so on. And so that's bringing you to quite some significant differences within the appellations. Right. You know? So the lower parts and the, the higher parts. And uh, in terms of harvest, that counts for about two to three weeks in harvest time. Difference? Yeah. And, uh, and aren't we dealing with valley vineyards and sloped exactly. yeah. tiered yeah. vineyards yeah. 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 and exposures, yeah. Yeah. like you said? Uh, exactly. And, and this is exactly what, what, what you find you know, when, when, when you're coming to this area, you instantly see that you're looking to two general types of vineyard sites. You, know, you have on one side, you have the terraced vineyards along the Danube and the side rivers of the Danube. So vineyards that are very Which dry. Is very Moselle-like. Exactly. So sense. very dry, high mineralization, ideal for Riesling production. On the other side, on the other side, we have vineyards based on lust on clay, uh, so vineyards with good water supply to the wines, which is ideal for Grunewald cleaner. So uh, Grunewald cleaner and Riesling are complementary grapes. So what one likes, the other doesn't like, and the other way around. And as we have those two opposing structures, we need the two grape varieties to cover the needs of these vineyards. Perfect. Yeah. Um, broad question, but I'm sure there's, you know, a commitment or a philosophy. Farming practices. Um, how do you approach that? I don't want to use any buzzwords, mm. but mm. Um, mm. are you subjected to tough conditions where you have to think about treatments or not? Or how do you try to farm? Well, the the, the thing is that you 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 have to think that you know what what was the original aim actually for the monks to grow wine? I mean, the the original aim was mess wine, altar wine. And um, specific purpose. Exactly. So, uh, and uh, the definition of, of messwine is that it cannot be altered neither by technology nor by chemicals or so. It's nature wine by definition. You know? Now, um, and this is something that is carried out you know, in the vineyards and, and in the cellar work and, and everywhere. Um, this and, is and not really changed? Because, and, 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 you know, in France, a farmer literally exactly. would farm like that, and then the war came and, you know, business changed, so they had yeah, to yeah, yeah. grow. 
you know, not quicker, but bigger, you know, so they started doing treatments, killed the land. There was never really a shift or a disrespect to the land that way. You you see see in our vineyards never ever have seen, you know, insecticides or, or herbicides, you know. So it's um, uh, we we have always been trying, you know, to to bring these vineyards as good as we can into the next generation. That's great. And um, does that follow through into the cellar practices? You know, simplification in exa- the wine exactly. making. Yeah, yeah. Nothing this really added the, or taken out. You know, w- one of the one of the principles of Cistercian belief is uh, strictness and simplicity. And this is something that I've always been following. You know, this is uh, uh, when you when you're reading. You know, the, my, my my first brochures actually that I did actually in 1996 or 1997. Uh, you know, th- this is already laid down during a time when no one was talking about right. nat- natural wine, orange wine, whatsoever. But you know, it, you know, it was not intervention. Nine hundred year right exactly. tradition that yeah. you know nobody thought about. Exactly. I mean, that's a yeah. great point because yeah. that's why I said no buzzwords. Yeah, you know, this exactly. is the way it was. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, and it's not like some vineyards and winemakers inherited land and eventually were able to turn it around mm-hmm. um, by going to these practices. It's always been that way, mm-hmm. you know, which is a beautiful thing. And obviously, and I'm sure that reflects in the quality of the grape, the mm-hmm. taste growing and all mm-hmm. of that, mm-hmm. um, which is a beautiful thing. Um, let's talk about some of the wines, um, as many as we can. You know, I want to talk about the tradition program. I know you make sparkling wines. I do not want to uh, pass up on discussing the reds a little because they're <laughs> exciting. Um, are the wines classified? I mean, when you, you know, I came across a word. Is it reed or ride? Um, yeah. Well, uh, you see. I mean, uh, your, mainly, your wines, how do you? We, 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 we are ma- mainly, mainly we are producing wines uh wines of origin so th- this is a- actually you know our main focus uh so in the you know we, we have an appellation system in the danube area that is quite simple to understand that is differentiating between three categories of wine you have the wines of the region you have the wines of the villages and you have the wines of the single vineyards now the single vineyards in austria they are called Ried, like riedel without the l yeah? okay <laughs> and uh and uh, why is that so important? Because uh, in Austria, we have about 4,300 single vineyards. Not even we know all these names. Right. So this is why we made it obligatory that when we want to indicate a single vineyard name on the label, it has always to be in, cons- in conjunction with the term of Ried. So it's always Ried Heiligenstein, Ried Lamm, Ried Geisberg, Ried Renner, and so on. So, uh, you know, for you, the, the good thing for you is that instantly you see this trigger word of read on the label, you instantly know, okay, this is a wine, is a single vineyard wine, you know? Uh, so like Grand Cru, Premier Cru, you know, it's read exactly, is read, it's read going is, to be singular vineyard, exactly, single uh, vineyard, and it'll be the quality vineyard yeah, yeah. So, of wine. So read is the historically and legal indication also in our wine law, you know, that, that indicates a, sing, a single vineyard. and means basically nothing else than cru. Yeah? Right. It means nothing else than cru. Right. And so this is, the, this, is the, um, this is the appellation system. Beside the appellation system, we are also uh, are working on a vineyard classification system. 
So for the past 30 years, uh, there's an association called Österreichische Traditionsweingüter, so the Austrian Association of uh, Traditional Wineries. And this private association is working for the past 30 years already on a vineyard classification system. And uh, now the government actually wants to take over actually this classification into the wine law. Uh, so this is. Uh, this Are is, you happy with the progress? This is. Uh, is it going where you want it to go? Uh, well, uh, we, we we are hoping we are hoping that everything is is well done, and and if if it's well done, you know, then it's really worthwhile actually, you know, okay. to to follow that. But is it being done well? I mean, it's you, it's you, it's on progress. I mean, you okay. know, we we. we and, the winemakers and owners exactly, are certainly exactly. on so, top of it. So it's it's uh, uh, it's like in uh, like in Burgundy, we are differentiating between erste Lage, große Lage, which is equivalent to Premier Cru and Grand Cru, um, and uh, uh, and so coming back, yes, uh, th these vineyards are classified. You know that that we are that we are working and that we are vinifying also then separately, and so these these wines, these appellation wines, and and so on. That's basically, you know, the core of our production. Right. Yeah. And beside that core, um, we're doing four specialities. So there's the quality sparkling production. Uh, Langenlois, the center of the Kamtal appellation, became in the meantime the. What is Langenlois? Is that it's, an area? It's, no, it's it's a village. It's, it's the village. It's the village okay. name. It's the village name. Okay. And and uh, Langenlois became. So be that's the center for your sparkling wines, Langenlois. Exactly. And and Langenlois is the epicenter for quality sparkling in Austria. So there's, you know, Willy Brunelmeyer and Leumer and Jurcic and Topf and Steining and so Goblesburg. So it's, you know, in, in this area, sparkling became somehow, you know, a certain importance. And so we're doing four different cuvées, a Brut Reserve, a Blanc de Blanc, a Brut Rosé and, and, a, and a vintage that is released after 10 years. So um, so this is a, a small assortment of, of the sparkling The 10 years is an aged sparkler. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's ten, nice. Yeah. Right, so and then, then uh, beside the sparkling, then there is a little bit of sweet wine. Um, right. Yeah, Auslese, and it's Ice funny wine. that it's only a little and bit. It, In Germany, well, it's a lot of bit. Yeah, yeah, but. exactly. Yeah, but I mean, you know, I mean, sweet wine is not a huge segment nowadays anymore. Um, but still, you know, we we have quite a reputation actually in, in that field as well. Then you already mentioned the red wines. Uh, we Let's are, talk we are, about some of the red we are, wines. We, we we are not producing red wine because we also want to have red wine. I mean, it's uh, we are producing red wine because. Uh, a certain percentage of our vineyards are based on these river sedimentation from the original Danube. The, the Danube was not always as regulated as today, so it went through very different parts uh, in, in, in the past millions of years. So a certain amount of vineyards we have, especially in the south of Goblesburg, we have where we have these kind of feast-sized river pebbles, you know, these like the Galerolais, like the, it looks like in yeah. the Rhone Valley. Yeah? Right. And in these in these vineyards, you have a, a, a good drainage in the soil, uh, so water is running away, you're running into early dry stress situation over the summer month. This is something that we don't like at all for white wine production. So in these vineyards, we're going then for red wine production, and we have an old tradition for Pinot Noir, you know, through the Cistercians, and we are looking after the, the, the three generations of, of Pinot, so Pinot Noir, Saint Laurent, Zweigel. So these are basically the red wines that we are looking after. Um, so, not to repeat, but Pinot Noir and Zweigel. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think people know a lot about Zweigelt. I mean, quickly, how it's, would you? Uh, Zweigelt is a, is a is a is a fairly interesting grape variety. It's it's in the meantime, in, it's the principal grape variety, red wine grape variety of Austria. 
So it's the widest planted red wine grape variety of Austria um, and is has a kind of an authentic character like Grüner Weltliner. It's, it's a grape variety that is really, you know, that is really recognized to be an Austrian grape. And the grandmother of Zweigl is Pinot Noir. Ah, so there's a lineage yeah, exactly. or a genetic so connection there is, there's, or a, there's a genetic connection, you know, via, via Saint Laurent. Uh, because Saint Laurent is a, is a genetic, uh, uh, it's a so genetic Saint Laurent child. is the variety, right? Exactly. There's yeah. Weigelt yeah. and Saint yeah. Laurent. Yeah. yeah. What's the difference? Uh, Saint Laurent is a grape variety that came in the mid of the 19th century from France uh, to Germany and from Germany to Austria, and in in France, uh, due to phylloxera, died out. Does not exist in France anymore, but survived in Austria, and. Uh, I always say that, uh, you know, when uh, Saint Laurent, you know, became a kind of an immigrant to Austria and, uh, you know, this immigrant uh, started to have a love affair with the great variety of Blau Frankish. That's funny. (laughs) And out of this relationship, you know, you get the the great variety of Zweigelt, you know. uh, So uh, two quick questions on Saint Laurent. They make a still and a sparkling or is it? Sparkling nice. Uh, Saint Laurent is a grape variety that you hardly can differentiate from Pinot Noir okay. in the vineyards. However, it's much darker, so the color is much more intense than, than Pinot Noir. Right. And it's a little bit more spicier. So reminds a little bit something. Uh, I have friends in, in, the, in the Rhone Valley, when I was tasting with them uh, Saint Laurent, they said, well, for them, it they, for them, it reminds them, you know, something in between Syrah and Pinot Noir. Yeah. I, I yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you're dealing with two good, yeah, you yeah. know, great yeah. varietals, yeah. to yeah. be in between yeah. is, is pretty good. Uh, Michael, we have to take a quick break. We're, t- we're talking to Michael Mosbroger um, from Schloss Goebelsberg in Austria. Um, when we come back, I want you to talk about the tradition wines and the tradition wine program. Um, towards the end of the show, we're going to taste a special tradition. So I want to get to that. Um, So you're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. This episode is supported by HRN business member Radical Wine, a small neighborhood wine and spirit shop in Clinton Hill, Brooklyn, that specializes in natural wine and regional-based spirits. Radical Wine is a shop where community can hang out and listen to records while finding a delicious bottle of wine for any occasion. Grab a bottle from the shop to bring to their sister restaurant, Brooklyn Hots, which is right next door. Radical supports HRN's creative, educational reporting and storytelling that drive conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. Hi, I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, Executive Director of HRN. HRN is dedicated to amplifying small businesses that keep our communities vibrant. Today, I'm asking business owners to take part in our business membership drive by supporting HRN's mission with a $500 membership. HRN will shine a light on your work and you'll help sustain our mission to expand the way eaters think about food. 
As a thank you for this tax-deductible donation, your business will receive on-air mentions, social media posts, listings on our website, and more. You'll also play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash biz to become a business member today. That's heritageradionetwork.org slash B-I-Z. Thank you for your support. All right, we're back. We're back with our guest, Michael, from Schloss Goebbelsberg. Um, I think an important piece, part, thing of Schloss Goebbelsberg are the tradition wines. Um, I told you before the show I have a bunch of past vintages and enjoyed them. Um, But you've embarked, I guess, on this 850th anniversary mission project um tell me about the tradition wines and then let's talk about where we're at with them now you know the celebration the wines you're making and again off air we talked about a different way of making them well the 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 tradition wines is um is one of the four specialties that we're doing at in in goebelsberg and uh I, I started to to go into this project uh, in the the late nineties um, because when I took over the responsibility on the estate, I occupied first on the history of the estate and then uh, but then soon I started actually you know to go into the question well but you know I mean I have so many predecessors now here on this estate how did they work actually here you know. And so I started to occupy on the question on, on, on the historical developments of winemaking. So how was wine made in the Greek-Roman times, in the Middle Ages, 17th, 18th, Where 19th century? Where were you researching this? Were there books and materials That's, and records at the winery? Yeah. Did you have to go outside? Yeah. Uh, well, um, you, you are sourcing actually all kinds of different um, sources uh, in, in, in that because when, you, when you're looking for Greek and, and Roman winemaking, you're, <laughs> finding, you're finding more information actually in archaeology than in, in historical books on, on, on wine. Uh, if you're looking to, to, to Hugh Johnson's uh, wine history, for example, there is not much about um, actually the, 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 the real winemaking process actually. Right. You know? Um, and, um, it's, uh, so, uh, you, you're digging out, you know, things, you know, from all different fields and, um, uh, and then of course, I mean, there's, there's literature, um, there is not much, lit- there's not much literature actually, uh, up to the 18th century. It's, uh, it's getting then a little bit more in literature, uh, about winemaking than from the 18th, uh, and especially then in the 19th century. Uh, then more and more is then written about winemaking. Uh, that has something to do also that um, uh, farmers became free. Uh, and there was a certain need actually, you know, for, for literature and for, for learning and, and, and all that. Um, but, uh, we also have documentations, of course, uh, in the library of, um, of the monastery. Uh, and so putting all that together, you know, is, is, is giving you a picture. And I decided, I decided, uh, in 2001 to go, uh, for this very specific period between the French revolution and the mid 19th century. 
Um, so the period about 200 years ago. Uh, why why this period? Uh, it's it's easy. You, you you're looking in 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 these days. You're looking to an empirical knowledge uh, of 2,000 years of winemaking on one side. Right. On the other side, it's a period that is not yet really influenced by the outcomes of the classical industrial question. So it's starting around 1850 that that winemakers and scientists are posing the very classical question: How can we produce wine? in bigger quantities and in a shorter period of time. And this has been leading then to uh, a series of uh, innovation, uh, the first filtration machines, for example, new pressing systems. Uh, 1870, uh, you have Pasteur inventing the pasteurization. Very important. Uh, it was the, the first time that you could bring sweet wines uh, stable on a bottle. Um, so this was a significant um, um, game changer, actually, you know, for, uh, for the Mosul area, for example. Uh, Daniel Deckers, uh, who is uh, the expert on, on, on German uh, history of wine, uh, told me a few years ago that, um, that uh, pasteurization was one of the, the major aspects, you know, that suddenly made uh, go Mosul wines actually through the roof in, in these days. But no effect to the quality of the wine or the well it's you know <clears throat> everything about a wine well, it's nose no, it's mouthfeel yeah. it's palate did it it's it's nowadays you know nowadays it's something that we definitely and also my colleagues in in, in the Muslim would would never do of right. course um, it made sense then and it was uh, essential in, then. in in these days yeah. it, it it made sense and it, it was it, it was really you know um the, the most important thing for them you know because it meant you know to to to, to have uh, to to have a possibility you know to to bring these wines with that structure with low alcohol high acidity and 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 certain sugar levels actually you know stable on on a bottle that was not possible before right so the tradition, like I said, you make tradition wines that share similar labels to the other wines. This particular, you know, wine is a celebration, an anniversary. You know, this is where we're at now. Tell me about this. Well, I, I started in 2001, actually, with this project. And uh, I originally started um, to produce a, a Grüner Weltliner and a Riesling tradition. Um, and uh, for um, until quite recently, until with the vintage 2017, um, and uh, I decided um, I decided in 2009 uh, to start to put wines in cask aside for later releases. And um, I said to you earlier, reminds me of champagne. Yeah, fair assessment. Yeah, to hold vintages. Yeah. For later blending, yeah. Okay, so and that was two thousand nine. You started this, that uh, two thousand nine. I started with that, and uh, and in the meantime, we we are looking to uh, a reserve cellar with more than hundred thousand liters uh, that, <laughs> that we that we keep in stock. That's a big commitment. Um, and um, uh, and I decided last year um, to to change the the tradition concept. Uh, and instead of bringing every year a Grüner Weltliner and Riesling tradition, I will bring in the future, I will bring uh, a three-year-old and a ten-year-old tradition. So changing from the varietal concept to the concept uh, of maturity. And um, So when you say the three-year-old, the 
oldest wine and that wine is three years old. In exactly. the 10, you go back to the vintages that you just... No, 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 no. The, the, the youngest wine is three-year-old. The youngest. Yeah. That's the, what the, I meant. Yeah. The, yeah, yeah. the youngest wine is three-year-old. Right. The last there's, guy there's in is a, the youngest. A little bit, right. you some, have to some older parts. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, so no more single gruner, no more single um, Riesling, mm -hmm. blended. And when was the first vintage? And uh, well, last year in 2021, we made the first edition. This is uh, Why? this is also this is also something kind of new and you know kind. Of, I would not say revolutionary, but it's you know it's it's breaking a little bit with um, you know with with old traditions uh, because you know if, uh, normally in the world of wine, you know we we uh, it's it's a, there is a kind of. Um, um, there is no debate actually about vintages, and uh, and this is something when you're looking to um, to you know to to the wines of the past um, is not something that is really God given. You know, I mean, this is certainly there were always you know wines of vintages, but the 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 the, the majority of wine you know was something that was always kind of blended. Right. And and I was looking into our inventories, you know, and uh, I, I realized that, you know, my predecessors in our cellars in the past hundreds of years, they had beside the accurate vintages, always back vintages. So wines that were 5, 10, 15 years or older, you know, and, um, and it, it was always kind of... And, you know, vintages were in these days a little bit more different than they are nowadays. You know, right. today's we, with our regulations, green harvest, and and you know all the possibilities that we have nowadays, um, vintages are a little bit more even. They, they they vary certainly over the years, but but they're in in comparison to what our predecessors have been facing, they are a little bit more even. In 200 years ago, you know, vintages could be very, very different, you know? Right. So from very, very ripe to really, really austere and, and, and so on. So it, it was kind of natural, you know, to, to blend vintages. And you have to see that, um, you know, the minimum time of maturation in these days was minimum three years. So uh, because if you, if you want to produce a wine that is clear, you know, right. without filtration, you know, then you need time. Time helps with clarity. Exactly, exactly. Okay. And and the the concept of luxury in these days was clarity. You know, because it was the proof that these wines, you know, were for at least three years, you know, in the cellars and were had the, their maturation time. So much for the natural wine movement, but that's another discussion. That's that's another. Well, it's um, the, the natural wine movement is, in my eyes, actually the most modern way uh, of vinification. Um, even though that uh, natural wine producers are always uh, and very often are claiming, you know, that they, that they are looking back, you know, to historical and, and da da da, but it's not really true. Because there is a significant difference between, you know, what is really, you know, traditional winemaking and what natural wine is actually about. Natural wine is by definition, uh, I would say, I would, I personally define it as, as a non-intervention way of winemaking. Agree. Yeah. And uh, so uh, this is something to do, you know, with our self side as winemakers and and how we see ourselves, you know, in 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 this pro in in in, in, in this in this process. Um, there's a significant difference, you know, to how winemakers saw themselves two hundred years ago, 
I mean, today and natural winemakers and, and, and also myself, you know, we, we see us as, as non-interventionalists, you know, so the, the great art, the, the, the art of making great wine is to do nothing, you know, and great wine is made in the vineyard. Well, you said earlier, nothing. the monks weren't talking about it. That's yeah, what yeah. they did. But the, 200 years ago, you have to imagine that uh, people had a, a different self-perception. So, uh, they said, you know, because in these days, wine was rather compared to us as human beings. They said, wine is like us. And as we humans have to undergo certain developments until we are grown-ups, also wine has to undergo certain developments. As we humans have to breathe, you know, to do all these developments, also wine has to breathe. The consequence was that they were wrecking the wines from cask to cask in order that the wine could breathe again to trigger the next step of the development ah. process and to go off the lease. Also one of the significant differences to, 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 to today because there, there was no filtration, so the wines needed to be clear, so they went off the lease and right. off the lease and so on until the wine was really clear. Now, the self-perception of the winemaker was that I am the seller master. The wine was my pupil. The process of this, you know, of this wrecking and so on was called the teaching of the wine. <laughs> in German, die Schulung. In French, élevage. Ah. Yeah. See? Yep. Yeah. So that means my responsibility and my relationship actually to the wine is not the non-intervention. My relationship is that I have to form, I have to educate this wine. So that means that means that my my responsibility is to to understand the potentials of this wine and to educate him right that he would develop up to his potentials. So this is direct intervention. This is direct forming. This is, if you compare it with education, um, what is the modern word of what we're doing nowadays with education? The non. Uh, non-authority uh, education. Right. Yeah? Anti-authority yeah. anti right. education. So right. anti-authority education, this is natural winemaking. You know? It's a yeah. it's the similar form. Exactly. That, yeah. That's interesting. I it, it's very well said, you know, the way you said that, because in a sense, it is very much intervention, but in a different way. But in other ways, it's not. Um, all right, so we have to finish up on a few things. So last year, celebrating the 850th anniversary was the first tradition in the um, winemaking way you described, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Is this the bottle in front and, of us, the tradition? And, and it's not vintage anymore. It's an addition. Right. So it says on the side, if you're looking at that. That's what yeah. I wanted to get to. How do I know what edition it's, it is? There is 850? Edition, edition 850. Am I yeah. silly to think the next yeah. one is 851? Or? Exactly. Okay. The next one is 851. Okay. Yeah, and so on. But, and I, I, I don't want to do this, but this edition came out in 2021. Mm -hmm. Okay. Which the vintage year has nothing to do with that. I just no. want to. Okay. And when can we expect the next edition? In September. September, like normal, mm -hmm. you know, cycle and all that. All right, so that's, you know, an incredibly interesting project, the Schloss Goldelsberg um, tradition. That's really, you, you really made some incredible changes, uh, which make the wine more interesting. All right, a couple things before we wrap up. I don't know if I told you this, but one of the things we're going to do is taste the wine and talk about it. But I do a thing called the wine list. I ask all my guests every show, nobody gets away, 
five questions. I've asked everyone the same five questions. So you're not being singled out Mm -hmm. or I didn't give you any hard questions. So no complaining. You don't have to dwell on the answers. It's spontaneous, impulsive. I post these on our social media. You know, a guy like you that is so steeped in tradition and winemaking and an interest, you know, people want to hear, you know, what what you're drinking. So here's the first question. What are you drinking now? What's in your fridge at home? What are you tasting? You know, what are you curious about? Other than maybe tasting through your wines, what are you drinking now? Um, well, beside Goldsberg, um, yes, yeah. Beside Goldsberg, it's uh, it's sherry, uh, Madeira, and Shiraz. So has that been going on for a while, or you've been intrigued lately by them, and you've really been drinking more of that? Uh, no, I mean these are. I, I made five years ago. I made a. I made a symposium on the most Im- important wine styles of the nineteenth century and their significance for today. Uh, and uh, so here we had we had Madeira, we had Sherry, we had. Um, uh, unfortunately, there was no Jura because I could not find anyone who would come. Um, we had uh, Mosel um, with Daniel Deckers, um, uh, and we have Tokai. And uh, you know, uh, today, today, I mean, you know, most winemakers um, they're you know they're so concentrated on on reduction and reductive winemaking. Uh, I'm I personally, you know, I'm I'm you know with occupying on historically questions. I'm more actually, you know, into the question of oxidation. And uh, and this the is why I'm so interested. and exactly. Madeiras are yeah. very oxidative wines, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. So why, this is why I'm so interested in, and also tradition is is oxidative winemaking. You know, and this, this so that whole exactly. you're intrigued yeah. by the category. All right, that's a good answer. Um, we're talking vintage stuff, old stuff. You know, for sherry and Madeira. I mean. Mm-hmm. You're trying everything. All right. Second question, maybe the silliest question in the group, but we love wine. We love food. You came from hospitality. Give me your favorite wine and food pairing. Not what you and I think is a good one, what you like. You don't eat it all the time, but when you do, what is that wine and food that is just the magical pairing? Can you think of anything? Oh, well, I... um don't overthink it. No, well, uh, you know, when it comes to my favorite food, it's, it's probably the stuffed veal breast of my wife. Okay. Um, and and for that, uh, I definitely, you know, prefer to have um, a, at least 10-year-old reed lamb. Uh, so this is probably my, okay. my favorite. <laughs> All right. So that's, yeah. you know, when you think about it, that reoccurs and those yeah. are favorites. So that's that's a good answer. Um, you should be able to answer this. And you're kind of a global guy because you've been traveling the country and, you know, you travel Europe. Do you have a favorite wine restaurant and or bar or a couple? Is there something by the winery when you hit the road, either in Europe or here? Is there a restaurant or two where the selection is great, the people are terrific, the vibe is great? You know, you just go in there. And by answering this, you're not saying this is my favorite and you're not leaving anyone out. Just what comes to mind? Well, I mean, uh, f- favorite wine places in, uh, in, in Vienna is definitely Coburg. 
Palais Coburg. Um, That's the name the, of the place, Coburg? Yeah, Palais Coburg, yeah. Spell yeah. that for me because I'm uh, going to post. C-O-B-U-R-G. Okay. So that that's a good one. So that that's, a, that's and a the winery one. is what less than two hours outside of Vienna, or even closer. Uh, the, the, it it takes me forty five minutes into, okay. the, into the opera. Yeah, it's like the, the suburbs. suburbs. <laughs> exactly. All right. Is there any other place that comes to mind? Anything in the U.S. or anything outside of Austria? Well, I mean, sixty seven Plumall, for example, in London. In London. Yeah, yeah. terrific yeah. wine place. Yeah, it's, it's Those are two good ones. And then, of course, Aldo's place here in in uh, in New York is. Is a is a must go. <laughs> well, you have Aldo Som wine bar and you have Le Bernardine. Yes, right. They're both yeah. great. Yeah. I was going to ask you about Aldo. He's been on the show a couple of times. Yeah. He's making his own uh, wine with yeah. uh, Crocker. Yeah. So um, that's interesting. All right. So those are good answers. All right. Fourth question. Favorite all time wine. When I started the show many years ago. I wanted to get guys like you in a room and ask you this question, and I wanted you to tell me the most expensive rare wine you ever drank. I don't care about that anymore. What is the wine in your lifetime that was a gateway wine that had an impact on you, that was important, that changed the way you think about it? Is there a wine or two that fits in that category? And that certainly doesn't mean price or rarity of vintage. It means impact to you. Yeah, well, uh, impact to me, I mean... I would say, let's say two wines. Um, so first of all, my real my my real wine flash, my first real wine flash, was a 1983 Hermitage from Julie Jaffe. Okay, and, that always works. And it, it's a it, was it, 83, and it's it's a it's a, it's a wine because my my brother my brother was uh, working for uh, was working in summertime a few a few weeks for Pic uh, in Valence. Uh, and Schaaf uh, was doing the house wine for for the pig family wow. these days, and uh, so the the old uh, the old pig uh, went with my brother actually to see Schaaf, um, and uh, from this visit, my brother brought me a bottle of Hermitage eighty three, and I still you know I, I was in university and was th- this was really my first wine nothing flash. like it, it was not, not I mean like, it's. Yeah. Truly, one of the yeah. great wines. Anyway, it, it, the it, fact it that you caught it at yeah. that time yeah. it made me. I, I, I still have the the bottle in my office. You do. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The um, second one. The second ahead. one. I would define as a Heiligenstein '67. Um, this uh, was a wine that I tasted. I think three or four. Is this years a Schloss ago. Heiligenstein? Schloss Schloss Gobelsberg Heiligenstein '67. This wine was as young as you could. When imagine. did you taste it? Yeah, three four years ago. And it was unbelievable. And it was just unbelievable. Jesus. And, you know, we, we have been just uh, been tasting here in this office uh, 50 years of Heiligenstein, so back to 1971. And it shows, actually, you know, um, it shows the potentials of the Danube area, I think. And, and it's, it's not, I'm not talking only about Goebbelsburg and our wines. I think that, uh, I think. Yeah, I think I, it goes beyond that. Ex- exactly. It goes beyond the that. The region. I think, I, I think has the ability. The, 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 you know what the Danube region has to offer. I think, and this is for me one of the most f- fantastic things, is that when you're looking to the greatest white wines in the world, I mean there are always wines with depth and concentration on one side, but on the other side always you know with this element of easiness. They're always easy to drink. You know, they're always, they have a a high level of enjoyment and drinkability, you know. And I think this is exactly what the Danube has to offer. 
I know? think that's a good offering. And 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 this is you know this is what what showed me you know that these wines are not only good you know when they're when they're young five or ten right. years they are still fantastic after fifty years. That's know? that's a great tribute to the wines the winemakers in the region. All right, last question, and it shouldn't be hard because I think we're in a category that makes sense here. Um, the question is, I want you to recommend to me the best wine around 15, 20, 22 American dollars retail. And the setup has always been my kids are in their 20s now. They can't show up at a dinner party with a crappy bottle of wine for $12. Mm-hmm. They can't afford 50. Mm-hmm. So what's a good value at 15, 20, 22? Give me a red and a white. Now, you can give me a region. You can give me a maker. Now, I have a strong feeling, and I need you to validate this, that there are some incredible values in Austria in both of these categories around these price ranges. Can you address that, or is it a little more? Well, I, um, uh, I would say, I would say um, first of all, uh, of course, uh, the, the Kamtal, Kamtal, Veltliner, and Riesling—these these are wines in that price range. Okay. So the re- the regional expression of of the Danube region, so Kamtal, um, these are fantastic quality to value, quality to value wines. Right. And and uh, um, I um, and and the, the Kamtal Riesling last year was uh, was rated uh, within the top hundred um, wine spectators. So you're talking um, everything and 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 critical it, it, acclaim, it, it, price, yeah, value, yeah. and all. So of that. here you get it all. What yeah. about red? Yeah. Um, and if for, you have to go outside of okay, your well, winery if, or if I'm going Austria, whatever I mean, you think is a good value. I, I could I could say now, of course, now at uh, Zweig, but but um, let's say uh, outside uh, outside of um, outside of uh, Austria, I would say um, Beaujolais. Beaujolais. Yes. At the village level? At the village level. Okay. I agree with that. What stinks is it used to be really reasonable, and through the years, yeah. it's not that cheap anymore. All right, Michael, you did an excellent job on that, okay? And I saw <laughs> you roll your eyes when I told you you had to do this, so you did well. All right, we wrap up the show with a segment called the Weekly Wine Sip. Mm-hmm. And what that is is certainly when I have a winemaker as a guest – Um, I think it's always a good idea to taste their wines and have the opportunity to discuss it with them. Mm -hmm. So I asked you and Abby, you know, to pick something for the show today. And I think you hit a home run here. So we have the tradition Cuvée 10 years edition 850. Mm -hmm. All right. We talked about the tradition program. But again, tell me more about this specific wine. Well, the tra- tradition ten years is a is a is a wine where the the youngest parts uh, have been matured for uh, ten years in in cask. Um, so here you have uh, you have a, a blend of uh, Grunewaldliner. It's mainly Grunewaldliner, but with a small percentage of of Riesling as well. Does that vary by vintage? Uh, You'll that, determine the that, blends exactly. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then. Uh, then you have uh, vintage 2010, which is the biggest part, and then you have smaller parts that coming from 2009 and, f- and a few older parts, actually, of that. 
Okay. And um, uh, it's it's a wine that has a, a really a really nice and decent perfume. Let's huh? so let, I'm going to go through the vitals now, mm-hmm. right? And you'll walk me through it. Let's go with color. It's a very deep yellow. It's a deep yellow. It's not a pale yellow. No. I mean, it's beautiful golden. Yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's a golden golden yellow. Yeah, which is very mm-hmm. eye-catchy when yeah. you pour it in yeah. the glass. Yeah. All right, so that's the color. Um, let's put it up to the nose and tell me your nose descriptors on this wine. And again, we discussed non-bouquet earlier, but what are yeah, we getting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, I think it's a, it's a, it's a nice and complex uh, bouquet. Um, that uh, it is nice and complex, yeah. and it's evolved a little because yeah, it's yeah. some older wines, yeah. which is e- nice. exactly yeah. All right, let's. So there's no primary aromas actually in in this right. Wine. Yeah, it's it's. So I, I agree it's, it's with It's all that. secondary and tertiary tertiary aromas. Um, move off of the subject for a minute, and then we need to come back to it. I think one of the things people get with Austrian wines and German wines is that petrol nose mm-hmm. what causes that i mean why is that is that the from the soils is that from the vintage uh, no the, wine making the, this petrol thing is is very simple um there's two components uh that are uh that are leading actually to to extensive petrol notes um there's on first of all it's sun exposure of the grapes um, which is leading uh, to this uh, these elements that are you know going to this petrol, and the other element is um, is maturity. Uh, so if you're harvesting too early, uh, then you also get these kind of petrol notes. Um, so based on maturity, if you underpick, ex- exactly, so you make I got you. It's a it's a part. Um, you know the 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 component that is responsible for that is uh, is something that is distinctly you know in combination with riesling. Um, but uh, these two components are leading base. So if you, um, this is why we are shading our riesling grapes always, you know, to the sun. So that 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 uh, that our grapes with, are not exposed with leaf canopy or with leaf pan- okay. canopy, yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> okay. So we are not taking leaves out. So we leave the, the, the so we are taking on the on the on the northern sides. We take the leaves out, but on the on the southern side we leave the the, the, the leaves. Interesting. And uh, and on the other side, then it's important that that uh, the grapes are uh, harvested with uh, decent maturity. Right. All right, so I said we don't want to spend too much time. So now we're coming back to our tasting of the tradition 850. Let's talk about mouthfeel. Mm-hmm. You got to throw it over the tongue to get it's, a feel for it. Yeah, it's um, uh, it's um, it's a it's a it's a it's a medium bodied wine. I say medium yeah. plus in or a good way. Ma- medium medium. It's plus, not unctuous, yeah. but yeah. it's mouth coating, but not glycerin. And uh, and you have here it's um, it's in contrary to the to the to the classical wines that we are producing. It has a different texture here on the mid palate. Yes. Yeah. It stays too. Yeah. Which is nice. Um, all right, so now let's talk about the palate. Are some of the descriptors on the nose in the palate, or the palate introduces some new, you know, flavors or descriptors? Mm, I think that they correlate pretty well. Okay. So when you 
when I'm smelling and I'm tasting. What are the two three things when you just the, think a palate? The, 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 the thing is that the, the thing is that you think about think about how wine consumption was done 200 years ago. I mean, this wine is about wines of the 19th century, early 19th right. century. Yeah? You've proven yourself to be a so history buff, we, we have a, a traditional guy. We have we have now a beautiful glass. Uh, I think it's the the Chances Robinson glass. Yes, JRRB. Um, I mean, you know, we, we in Austria. Abby told me to save you some of this, but it, I have to keep tasting. It. <clears throat> um, in in Austria, we are very lucky, actually, you know, to have uh, some of the best glass producers in in Austria with oh, yeah. Riedel and with Salto. So um, we 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 are tasting a lot. But this glass is also fantastic, uh, Chances Robinson's glass. But um, uh, but think about people two hundred years ago did not have these glasses. No. They were drinking out of toothbrush cups, you know. Right. Yeah. The, the so it didn't open up. It exactly. didn't sit yeah. in a nice bowl. So if if you, if you Google, you know, for you know, glassware nineteenth century, then you see, you know, you hardly could smell anything with these glasses. So um, you know, in the perception of uh, of wine lovers two hundred years ago, you know, the smell of a wine was not important. I know. Yeah? So that means, you know, the whole perception of the wine was rather done, uh, you know, on, on the palate. Today, when we, when we are enjoying wine, you know, there's about two-thirds of, of the pleasure that we take is coming from the smell. Right. Yeah? People don't realize it. And, it's and, happening, and, and, and one, they don't one realize third, it. You know, when, 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 yep. when we, but in these days, it was just the other way around. Right. Yeah? <laughs> but you're drinking out of a toothbrush cup. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about this particular wine and what kind of foods would go well with this. Uh, so this wine, um, I mean, you can you can you can drink it. You know, Eva's stuffed veal. Uh, yeah, for, no, of course, of course, of, of course. course. <laughs> okay, I mean, it's a it's a stylistic expression that is in a way universal. You know. I mean, it's um, it's not extreme in one or the other. I agree. Side. Yeah. So that opens it so up. So that a opens lot of, up to quite a lot. But of But what's options. the primary recommendation on this? I mean, what you can you can have that for Wiener Schnitzel in the same way, you know, as as you could have it with or, a roast chicken or salmon. A, exactly. Or I mean, it, uh, there's no I even mean, a salad or something. There's there's only a few limitations to it, and one of the limitations is goulash. Not good with goulash. <laughs> goulash. You got a, the noodles. You got the sauce. You got the meat. But in, too much going on. In, in right? our in our world, actually, goulash is accomplished. You know, with with beer. <laughs> so I was just going to say, while I have you talking about goulash, so beer is the best pairing. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Yes. Good for that. All right. So that is the Schloss Goblesberg tradition heritage cuvee ten years. It's the eight hundred fiftieth. It's edition 850 in celebration. Um, and this is in the market now, right? Mm. And come this fall, the next edition. So we're really at the uh, exciting and early stages of this particular yeah. project, yeah. which is very cool. So if I cracked open one of my traditions, let's say from 2016, mm -hmm. that is a singular vintage year wine, mm -hmm. right? Versus this, which is a whole... Yeah. I mean, it's just crazy where yep. you took this project. Congratulations on it. All right, Michael, we have to wrap up. Let me do a quick um, 
closing and I want to get some information from you. So if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening or event, hit me up at Sam at the grape nation.com. That's Sam at the grape nation.com. Subscribe to the grape nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. I always say, if you hit the subscribe button, the podcast will be sent to you automatically. And within 24 hours, you will be an expert on Austrian wines. Thank you to Michael. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. On Instagram, we're at SBenRuby. And on Twitter, we're at BenRuby. But you can always use the hashtag, The Grape Nation, to get to us on both. As I mentioned, we'll post Michael's wine list answers. There's some great recommendations there. And our weekly wine sip, I'll give you the information specifically on this wine, so if you want to look at it. Um, so, Michael, if we want to follow um, Schloss on social media, follow you, or we want to find out more information online, where are the places we should go to? Uh, well, we have an, an Insta account that is uh, that is run by my son. Okay, <laughs> so, and, and and that's Gabe, important. And, and Gabe, I'm glad you got him. G- um, Gabe and Abby already had yeah, great fun actually with that. <laughs> so, what's the, is it? Schloss Goblesberg. Where do we yeah, get to it? Yeah, Schloss Goblesberg. Okay. Yeah. So that's and, wait. That's S C H L O S S G O B E L S B U R G. Schloss Goblesberg. Okay. Then where else? Mm-hmm. Uh, Facebook. Um, which Globus. is which is run by my wife. <laughs> okay, get the whole family. <laughs> and then there is the website uh, at goblesburg.it. Okay, um, where you get all the information on the wines. On it's the a tradi- very rich site. I've on the on. on the on the tradition heritage ten years, where you get all the information about the wines, the history, the traditions, and then the castle architecture, everything that you it's, want. It's the, the this interview doesn't do justice to the history. The castle, the amount of wines you're making, um, you know, we. I'd rather get into a few things and do that well mm. than be all over the place. But I recommend people to go on, you know, the site and really, um, it's a special place. And when uh, Gabe at Skernick reached out, mm. you know, I, I was happy to hear from that and I wanted to talk to you. So in closing, I want to thank our guest, Michael Mosbroger. From Schloss Goblesberg. I want to thank our engineers at Heritage Radio um, and Heritage Radio. And I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can also find us at Facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.